Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Hey everybody, I'm Adam Johnson, back with you for another episode of the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. Thanks for joining. So, this life with a rare disease, it's full of many ups and downs. Same can be said whether you're a patient, a caregiver, a parent, a loved one. It's a lot, to say the least. There are so many considerations, so many decisions to be made, and lots of times it can be rather unpleasant, even just the thought of some of it. Sometimes it doesn't even go beyond those thoughts. It just stops right there. And I've sometimes wondered if it would be nice to have someone to help me, to help us through this entire process to assist in navigating these uncharted waters. And that brings me to this month's topic. At a recent appointment I had with a member of my regular, ever-expanding care team, they recommended palliative care as a resource moving forward. Now, I've heard of palliative care before, from some in the rare disease community. In fact, a few of my friends here really champion for palliative care to be a part of the team for everyone working through these rare or chronic conditions. And I heard those thoughts. I considered them. But honestly, I'd never dug into the topic much beyond that. Yet, here I was at this appointment with it staring me right back in the face. And even though I'd learned a little bit about palliative from my friends, you know, things like it's not hospice, it's not something for anybody that's just near or at the end of life, I was still scared, still nervous, not exactly a willing participant in this case. But I came around and I did it. I explored it. I sought the reference and moved forward. And I'm really glad that I did. It's been quite the process. I'm only a couple of appointments in, but it's been really helpful for me to bring some of those thoughts that I talked about earlier to light. It's really helped me process them moving forward. And as I'm going through all of this and experiencing all of these things, I I wondered, like I do so many other times, if it might be helpful to just shed some more light on palliative care through an explorative conversation. I mean, I kept thinking during my first couple of appointments that, man, this is the type of information that can really help dispel the myths that exist. It can help provide information that might be helpful for many others. And that brings me to my guest this month. I was fortunate to have an insightful conversation with Kim, a social worker, and Michelle, a PA, and together they form a dynamic duo with extensive background in their lines of work, and right now they're tag-teaming on the St. Luke's Palliative and Supportive Care Team, and they're also the newest members of my care team. So together, through our conversations, 
we hope to continue to educate and to peel back the curtain on palliative care a little bit. Perhaps this could be the start of the conversation for some in the rare chronic illness world, and for others, maybe it's simply to provide some information. Either way, our hope is that it's very helpful in whatever stage you are at in your exploration. Either way, we hope it's helpful. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Kim and Michelle. All right. Good morning. Hi, Kim. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Good morning. Good morning, Adam. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. I appreciate you taking some time. I know it's a busy time of year and we've got a lot going on, but thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Our pleasure. So this is going to be a a nice little twist on the Parents' Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. My Typical guests are other parents in the rare disease community that I've been fortunate to connect with, and we discuss all sorts of topics that range from our day-to-day interactions, how it is to navigate life as a parent as we're trying to figure out what's going on with our conditions and how things are progressing and what we've got going on. There's a lot at play, and one of the things that I think is really important for us to consider is how do we get as most effective, efficient care as possible? And how do we support each other along those lines? And a big step for me recently has been to explore palliative care. And that's not something that I was particularly familiar with. It's not something I had on my radar until I had one of my medical team members bring up the topic with me. And here we are with with Michelle and Kim. And I've been fortunate to get to know you and to have you join my my care team over the last few weeks. And I really appreciate you both taking the time to provide this episode focused on more of an educational aspect. Let's get this information out there. Let's talk about palliative care. Let's figure out what's going on in this world, because there seems to be a lot of questions, a lot of confusion. And I know once I started talking with you both, it really helped clear things up. So I really appreciate you taking the time again, like I said, and and jumping into this conversation. So before we dive too far into that, would you each mind giving a a brief intro to yourself and what you're up to? Sure. I'll go first. My name is Michelle and I'm a PA on St. Luke's Palliative and Supportive Care team. My focus is in the outpatient clinic, but I've done inpatient palliative care as well. And I come from a long history of being a PA in the community in a variety of fields. Awesome. Thank you. And how about you, Kim? I'm Kim. I'm a social worker, and I'm here also at St. Luke's in Palliative and Supportive Care Services, also primarily focused outpatient. I do some inpatient work when needed. And um, I have a long medical career. I spent the last five years working in a cystic fibrosis clinic focused on that community and then um, in, in inpatient medical environments. So has been a really exciting place to be to meet patients' needs and some unique needs. Fantastic. Well, and I, I love the approach that you're both, you know, taking here in this like tag team type effort. And well, first of all, like probably takes two of you to manage one of me anyhow, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you need to, you probably need all the help that you can get working working from that aspect. But I'm, I'm curious to see if I'm just one of the lucky guys in the world that gets the opportunity to work with you both in your different fields 
at the same time? Or is that something that you find that's common, either maybe within your practice, within our state, or within palliative care in general? Most palliative care teams would have an interdisciplinary team with um, multiple disciplines. There's some variance when you look at palliative services um, throughout the country, but a social worker um, being part of that team is pretty common. And I think other, you know, you may see a chaplain as part of the team. Often a palliative care, as Kim said, it's interdisciplinary We'll have physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners, social workers, often a chaplain may be involved, a pharmacist may be involved to assist with complex medications. So it it really does help to have a whole village to provide full care. Yeah, I agree. And I'm finding that so helpful in order to, you know, get that complete picture for the patient and from your perspective, figuring out where they are and what they need and how you can kind of pool and combine your resources and your expertise in order to really help move things forward for the individual, for the family members. I, I find that it's a really helpful balance. And I feel like we could we could maybe even do more of that in healthcare across the board. I agree. You know, I think we've seen medicine transition to into very fractionated care over the years. There are multiple subspecialists, specialists, It's hard for a primary care provider to remain the center core with limited time. So that is definitely something that we hope to bring to a patient's care when they're diagnosed with a serious illness. We hope to be able to see the bigger picture, pull all of that information together, help them and their families understand what's going on and how to best move forward with their care. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful approach. But I I think that, you know, in terms of our conversation here, I could just jump in and do the back and forth all day. But I think for anybody that might be listening for the first time or exploring this topic of palliative care for the first time or, you know, I don't know, we've all heard of it before, I think, or, or most of us have heard of it in the rare disease community before at least I had heard of it. And I also had some really big misconceptions about what it means and when I needed to introduce it to the conversation. And quite frankly, it's scary. It's a scary word. It's a scary topic. It's a scary thing for me. And I feel like there's probably others that might be in that same boat. If we kind of backed things up a little bit with our conversation and just started with the simple question, what is palliative care? How would you describe it? No, I I think you're your emotions are very, you know, your experiences um, with palliative care are very common. We'll often have patients referred to us and they are confused, they're frightened, they don't know really what our service provides. So it's not uncommon to have to back up and explain exactly what we do. So, you know, our service, as we explained, is a multidisciplinary service that gets involved with patients and their families once they have a diagnosis of a serious or a life-limiting illness. And our hope is that we are able to help the family, you know, along that journey. We recognize that having a a serious illness or a life-limiting illness presents a lot of challenges for families. And we like to work with them, understanding goals of care, what's important to them. We kind of help them explore how they want that journey to look. And this includes some really practical as well as more global what's important picture for the family. But we do talk about, you know, the advanced directives, living will, code status, in addition to what's most important to you. How can we help support you? How can we help you get to that space? So we work alongside your primary care team. Patients that are seeing palliative care are still seeking treatment. So we're not replacing treatment. 
you know, we encourage and work alongside the subspecialist, the specialist, the primary care provider. We help coordinate communication often. We can help clarify things for families as needed when there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of information and overload coming in. So we like to be a really supportive, safe place for patients. And I think once we're able to explain that to patients, you know, while we're talking serious discussions, while we're having these really emotional and difficult meetings, we're not end of, you know, we are talking about end of life. This is important to talk about, but we're not, you know, we try not to be scary. We try to be a safe and open place for people. And I don't know, Kim, you can expand, I'm sure. I think the only other thing I'd say, Adam, is you're, you're right. I think the majority of our patients in their first appointment are really afraid and they're afraid that they've been sent to us because it somehow means that their doctor thinks they can't help them anymore and um, that it's now time for hospice. And um, so we have to do a lot of, actually, it's really our standard that first visit to provide education and differentiation from hospice. Um, providers, oftentimes um, organizations, their palliative and hospice services may be in a department shared, so they kind of get equated and lumped together. Um, but hospice is a different focus. It's a different service, and it is focused on end-of-life care with a six-month or less prognosis. But prognosis or, um, you know, expected life expectancy is not a condition for palliative services. We may follow people for many, many years. And so it's usually what we try to address right away so that that fear and anxiety might be eased and people feel a little bit more comfortable about the goal or the purpose of the service. Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinguishing factor for folks to recognize is the, the kind of the the difference there. I think I heard somebody and you can, you can jump in with your thoughts here and correct me if I'm wrong and how I interpreted that or if I misunderstood, but I feel like the one way I heard it described was palliative care is a type of hospice, right? Like they're kind of tied in together a little bit, but hospice isn't necessarily palliative care. Would that be fair? Or are they two completely separate, like different type things? No, I think you could, you know, if you think of an overarching umbrella, I think hospice is kind of more towards end of life focus. And the focus, though, is very different. While people are under the care of palliative care, they are still seeking active treatment for their condition. And when you're transitioned to hospice, the difference is that your focus has now become comfort and symptom management. Under hospice care, the intention is that you won't be returning the ho- to the hospital repeatedly. You won't be coming in for all these interventions that really take time away for the patient and their loved ones or their patient and their pets. Or, you know, they would prefer at that point to focus on symptom management and comfort in their place that makes them feel happiest as their end of life approaches. So there is a difference in that regard, but I can allow that. Yes, they probably do fall under both the same umbrella. They both help patients once they have a serious illness as they navigate that journey. Yeah. And I think that it sounds like the the timeline and the steps that you're going to take moving forward really help delineate between which care you might be seeking at that initial onset. How far in the process are you? Where are you in terms of your progression of your disease or your illness, your condition, and what are your goals moving forward then? Is that is that fair to say to you? Mm-hmm. I think that captures it pretty well. So I think that one of the things that's been really helpful for me and then even, you know, for my for my wife as we have these discussions with you is being able to do this type of thing when we're meeting, right? When we're talking is to be able to say, hey, we're thinking about this. We heard this. 
what can you tell us about this information? And I've really appreciated those open, honest conversations. And one thing that I really loved and appreciated about one of our first meetings in the in the clinical setting was you taking the time to get to know me and what I was up to, what I was doing, how I was feeling, what I was going through, asking all sorts of different questions to do that. Is that also me just benefiting from, you know, you two lovely ladies and helping in the way that you do? Is that part of your your practice, your schooling? Is that something that a lot of folks can expect? And I say all this with, you know, something that I really should preface this whole conversation with, and that is, this isn't, you know, medical advice. This isn't something anybody can just take and run and say, this is how it is. This is how it's supposed to be. You've got to be in consult with your teams and your care and all that good stuff. But generally speaking, is this is this a pretty typical interaction for the for the process? Absolutely, Adam, and and thank you for your kind words. You know, we think feel it's our privilege to get to know people, but in palliative care, absolutely, the root of our practice is really to understand patients. And without knowing, there's a million ways to go with your healthcare. You know, healthcare can do so much, and we really need to tailor it for each individual. So, without really understanding who you are, what's important to you, what are your goals, what are your fears. It's hard to make recommendations. It's hard to give you the proper resources. It's it's difficult to know how you want to go. And part of the pride and one of the reasons I know I was drawn to palliative care is we're actually given the time to have these conversations. And it's not uncommon for our team. You mentioned, you know, your wife, and it's not uncommon for our team to pull in family members or loved ones, whoever that may be, that are really important to that person to provide support and provide context. Yeah, I was going to add to that. It's a really critical part of our practice. I think it's just a really amazing evolution of of medicine to recognize that uh, medical care has, you know, historically been pretty directive. And the culture's changed, the world has changed. And so by getting to know our patients and their families and what's meaningful to them, what risks and benefits mean to them, that's that's not a boxed answer. It's not a scripted answer. It's very individual and unique. And our goal is that that helps patients when they're making decisions, medical decisions, weighing things like procedures or treatments or surgeries or hospital stays or even sometimes medications, whether for them what do those risks and benefits mean? And, um, you know, having a different kind of like a a framework um, prepared. So when they encounter those, they feel more prepared to make informed decisions and decisions that are in line with their needs and their family's needs and their overall, like Michelle said, goals and maintenance of quality of life. I think it's just a really beautiful part of our work that we talk about quality of life. And um, it could be assumed that that's as commonality person to person, but there's actually a ton of variance about what makes life worth living. And even what do you consider living? You know, is that that you're able to talk and interact with your family? Or is it that you're physically there, even though you may not be able to communicate? Those are not things we think about day to day. And those are not things that people are comfortable talking about in general. And um, I think that a lot of what we offer is a safe environment with a lot of support to talk about these things that are scary, but usually have been on people's minds. And maybe they've needed to talk to their spouse about it or their parents about it or even their doctor about it. But just the fear holds us back. The words, we don't know the words. So we can have those conversations in in a safe environment. Again, we work in the clinic. So we're working with patients that aren't necessarily 
necessarily in crisis, but even in the hospital where people are there under different conditions of having an acute illness and sometimes being very, very ill. It's with the support of people to help guide these conversations and to have skills in case those um, emotions are really intense to be able to give you support and intervention to manage your emotions around it. And that's such an important aspect of all of this as well. I you know I really appreciate that that perspective that you both bring to the table and that, you know, the the practice in general will bring to the table because I think it's really important. And I just wanted to add, you know, when I think about the fear that patients and families have with these referrals and hearing the word palliative, one thing that comes to mind as Kim is talking is, you know, our role is to be your advocate. You know, we recognize everybody, as Kim was saying, everybody's vision for how they want their healthcare to look goes is different. And our role is to not tell you what that is supposed to look like, but our role is to really advocate and, and to help you kind of put into words or kind of visualize what you would like that to look like. And then we advocate for you. So I think that may also help alleviate some of that discomfort and fear that we're really there to be helpful and advocate, not be, as Kim said, prescriptive. Yeah. And that's such a shift for me personally. It seems like in general for maybe the entire healthcare type system, but the shift is happening. It seems like overall in general, where the patient voice is being heard more and becoming more a part of the conversation. I'm just thinking back to like some of my doctor's appointments when I was younger. And then honestly, even up until a couple of years ago, when all of this started happening with me with my rare disease coming into play. I didn't know what was going on. I'm trying to figure out what my diagnosis is. I've got all these weird symptoms, but nobody can figure things out. And it's like, you go to the doctor, they do some tests, they tell you what's going on, they tell you what to do, and that's the end of that. Or they tell you, nothing's wrong with you, this is all in your head, move along. And I've been on both sides of the spectrum there, and both can be really difficult and really challenging And it took me a while to kind of figure out that, hey, I've got a voice in this too, which is an important aspect. And I really have appreciated how me working with both of you has helped me find that and solidify that even more. I think that's an important aspect or or point for people to kind of keep in mind as they start kicking around the idea of exploring palliative care. You're really there to help process all of these really difficult things and the words that you're using in terms of, you know, fear or not wanting to or avoiding conversations around some of these really potentially difficult topics. If it's rattling around in that brain, then it's probably something that needs to be talked about. And this is a great supportive avenue in which to do that. I mean, most people are at home worrying about what it's going to like, like if they get sicker, when they get sicker, because with their condition, that may be the expected course, right? And it can feel really difficult to take that to your partner over and over again, and, you know, to your parent. And so being able to to talk about that first, let people know that's totally normal. We can um, help maybe cast a light about what you might expect in terms of condition, your symptoms, your functioning. For sure, with some conditions, they may be really rare and people's courses are really individual, but that helps people. And it makes me think about in general, people have a medical condition. They also often feel like they've lost a lot of control, you know, and kind of forced to interact with the medical system. You don't really get to choose. Like, you know, I can 
choose if I want to muscle through a sore throat or not, but that's very different when you have a condition that if you don't interact, it's totally going to change or limit your life expectancy. So you lose a lot of control. We try to help people recognize the options they have for control. And part of that is in how much information they do or don't want about um, what to expect, what their prognosis may be. Some people benefit from a great deal of that. It's really important for them and very calming and lets them be able to function better. And other people really kind of just are functioning at 24 hours a day at, at a time. And, and that's where their needs are at. And like Michelle said, we're really there to just wherever you're walking, wherever your path goes, we're just there next to step by step. Yeah. And it's so nice to have that. It really is. It's been a big comfort for me as well to have that process taking place here, even as challenging and difficult as it can be. It's helpful. The other side that I want to bring up is a lot of the folks that I have, like in my mitochondrial disease community, that I've come in contact with through, you know, different nonprofit organizations or support groups that we have, like certainly the podcast that I do here in cooperation with MitoAction. A lot of the folks that I've met there were all at just different places with our conditions, different points of time. And the tricky thing about mitochondrial disease, and it, you know, it can, and it can be like this for many of the other rare diseases as well, is that, you know, if, if I have the same condition as somebody that's sitting right next to me, it could present completely differently. It could progress completely differently. And that's one of the challenges with Mito is that there's not necessarily a charted course where we know what to expect. And I, I want to bring that side up because as I start to talk about some of these conversations that I've been having with you, exploring, you know, different medical options that are coming up. What do I want to do from like an advanced directive standpoint and figuring out my will and those types of things that need to get dialed in or fine tuned. Those are also things that make this type of conversation scary for people, including myself. And I'm, I'm curious to know who should or could have palliative care for them, considering that person that's sitting right next to me might have a completely different trajectory on their journey, right? They could be years away from any of these things coming to fruition. Are they still a good candidate to work with you all? Absolutely. You know, I think our intent and our goal with with particularly the outpatient clinic is to really capture people upstream, you know, and we recognize that their goals are going to change as the disease progresses or evolves. And so the frequency that we may even get involved can vary tremendously. But imagine how overwhelming it is at first to have a diagnosis, a serious diagnosis, and then be seeking all these options. And if we can even just help ground that conversation a little bit initially, and maybe the frequency of follow-up with us is once a year, you know, and the goals may be very different early versus late. But at the, even I think the more we know you and have that relationship with you, we can hopefully be more helpful and just kind of ground the conversation. So, you know, our goal is palliative care is, is at any point along that journey. Once somebody has a diagnosis of a serious or life-limiting illness, we are happy to get involved and be supportive in whatever way we can. I was going to add, Adam, um, you know, in besides the general population benefiting from education, the reality is the medical community continues to need education about palliative care. So we'll often hear from patients that one of their doctors may say to them, like, it's too early, it's not time for palliative care, you don't need that yet. And we can tell by the way they're speaking about our service that they are associating us 
with hospice. And so there's just a need in general for education, even for us in our medical community to understand that palliative care could be really helpful, even if people aren't exhausted treatment options or facing a six-month prognosis or something like that. Um, So there's just a much broader opportunity there. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Kim. I was going to bring that up as well. It's one of the things that I think is a really important part of this conversation around education. It's one of the many reasons I'm so thankful that you both agreed to come on and have this conversation with me in hopes that it can reach others and be a help and a support to others as well. I love my team, my care team. I've got so many different folks that are a part of it, many different doctors and many different specialty areas. They all bring something important and valuable to the table. You know, there's different relationships depending on the different, you know, stage that I'm in with the relationship with the doctor and so forth. I wouldn't have explored that. And don't tell my friend who's been a big proponent in the rare disease community of palliative care. She's like, get in there, (laughs) get everybody that's in the rare disease community needs palliative care. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I hear that. Tell me some of the reasons, though. And she kind of talks about it a little bit. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I agree. And then the time comes and I'm like, I'm scared. (laughs) I don't I still I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this stuff. But my point around the education process to bring that back around here is that even though I knew that I could or should start exploring this idea of palliative care, I didn't do it until one of my doctors on my team said, hey, it's probably time for you to start in with this conversation. And it was to help me figuring out some of the issues that I have with my respiratory system, my respiratory muscles, my breathing, you know, trying to figure out what does that look like as things continue to progress, how it plays out. So I took them up on that and then, you know, thankful to be connected with the two of you. If I didn't get that little push, I don't know how that would have gone. And the other thing is, is when I talked to him about it and then talked to a couple other doctors on my team that don't necessarily you know, communicate with him or they didn't see the notes or they didn't know that was happening. A couple of them were like, what? No, no, you don't, you don't need that yet. You're not there yet. And so I do think it's this important opportunity for us to all get on the same page or as close to the same page as possible in in terms of figuring out how to best support each other through this process. And I think palliative care could be this great coordination of care point That can be beneficial to everybody. And the more people we can kind of get the word out to from patients to caregivers to, you know, practitioners, the better. So thank you for bringing up that point. And then my follow up to my long rant there is (laughs) how do we continue this whole education process? I'll jump in. I mean, I think it's I think of that in different levels. You know, I think in terms of like as a hospital system, we have you know, kind of targeted goals and efforts to improve that within our hospital and our physician community. I think things like this, actually, we had some of our partners um, interview earlier in the year with our local NPR station. So that's great community education, really important. And then it's on the one-on-one level as well. So, I mean, people usually don't know what I do. (laughs) So taking those opportunities to educate. And I'm hopeful, you know, one thing that I really make an effort to do is I communicate after I do a palliative care visit, I communicate or at least send my notes to every provider on that person's care team. So hopefully they get a sense of what we do over time. And, you know, sometimes it may be nothing more in a visit. Often the initial visit is just getting to know the person. And so I could see part of the care team would be going, what are they doing? But again, that's such an important and integral part going forward. We cannot move forward until we understand who you are and what's important to you. So, you know, I try to engage the whole care team. And I, you know, I think 
that building those relationships and help spreading the word about palliative care that way and just seeing how we are helpful, hopefully. We can continue to grow, you know. There are, you know, definitely courses and centers that continue to spread the word and, and uh, be very proactive for palliative care, but it's definitely going to be slower. And I think the clinical space is going to be slower. It's, you know, commonly accepted in patient, but getting clinic space and getting that going is just going to be time. And, and patients can advocate for themselves as well. I think having patients ask for the service can at least raise awareness about it. Yeah. And it, you know, to, to your point of hopefully it's helpful, it's been extremely helpful for me. I've probably said that multiple times throughout and I'll continue to, to say that because it has been very helpful for me. I think it can be really helpful for others and Boy, I love the work that you both are doing in terms of that education piece as well. I know that that's something that you both are able to do within your system, within the community, um, within the teams that you're working with, and the individuals in that one-on-one sense. So I can see how you both are hitting in all of those different areas. And um, it's also exciting to see it brought to the broader public through NPR type interviews or other other, um, educational awareness type opportunities. One thing that I continue to explore and grapple with and especially as it comes in as a conversation with my mitochondrial disease community and the and the rare disease community at large is some of those considerations that are there for various states. I know that I've come in contact with many different folks across the country, really across the world. I also know that both of you are here in in my close proximity, right? We're in Idaho and we've got, you know, our parameters that we work with. You have your parameters that you work with. So it's tough to really dig too far into those discussions about what things look like for every individual across the country, across the world. And with that said, I'm curious to see if there's any anything that you know of, that you're aware of from like a general resource perspective or, you know, somebody that's in, let's say, you know, Florida that goes and talks to their doctor and advocates for themselves for somebody in palliative care, but they're response is, I'm not sure you're ready for that. Or I don't know if you need that, or we can't, we don't have that yet. Those are some tough situations as well, that this whole education topic can really help move forward. But I'm curious to see if there's any ideas that you might have for folks that could be in that situation at all. There's probably a lot of variability throughout communities and states for access to palliative care. It's a younger discipline um, in the medical community. And I believe our roots are in college care. So some folks may um, look to find a palliative service in their community, and that may be a service that's um, provided directly for an, an oncology patient population. It is more common in a hospital-based setting, so it may be harder to find outpatient. But some communities even have home-based services. For example, our partners in Twin Falls just here in Idaho, they have a largely home-based program larger than their clinic-based program. So there's a lot of variance. But what I would let people know is if you're feeling like palliative care would be a good addition to your care team is to talk to your primary care provider, some of your close specialists, and ask for a referral. I'm hoping some of this education will help people advocate if they find that there's kind of a pushback of like, I don't think you need that. You can maybe say, oh, could you tell me why? And maybe I could talk about why I thought I could use it now. Because Someone's answer doesn't have to be the end of the conversation, but it, additionally, people may have may find if you're in a small community, um, not around large medical systems, you might have to travel to get um, to a service or see if they could do virtual appointments. That's, you know, the, our modern world now, there's certainly lots of places doing a lot of virtual care, which is awesome because it's provided more opportunity because it's usually been pretty, you know, metropolitan 
centered in more metropolitan areas than smaller rural communities. So there's a lot of variability and it might take a little bit of to-do and, and um, searching. So I, I wanted to pause on that. I know Michelle is familiar with a website that might help people and maybe you're able to put links. Yeah, definitely. We can get we can get a link in the show notes for sure to link this out, Michelle. And one one thing that I wanted to highlight that you said there, Kim, is just because somebody says something, one person's answer doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. I wanted to just highlight that. That stuck out big to me. And I was like, say that one louder for everybody in the back, because that that ties in that ties in with the entire conversation, right? From this whole process of and this comes up often in the rare disease community. Hey, I've got these symptoms. I've got, the, well, this looks fine. It's fine. You're fine. Move along. If I would have just taken that for an answer from the couple people that told that to me, or they said, it's all in your head, just get over it and move along. Oh man, that it was brutal enough to go through that process. I didn't know I could say, yeah, I'm not going to accept that. And I was 35 years old. So, you know, that that's something that I've learned. I have to advocate for myself. So I love that you said that. That's a applicable point for everybody, no matter where they are in their journey. And it's also really applicable here in the palliative care discussion as well. So thank you for that. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, how difficult that is. I know it's difficult. It's exhausting to continually advocate for yourself. And hopefully you are able to access palliative care because that's something they can do to help with as well. So I just wanted to point that out. And I think we gave you the website. I don't know if you want me to say it out loud, but that may be a good resource. You know, we also have a professional American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, which may have resources and links as well. You could just Google. Again, I know it takes time. And when you're not feeling well or you're trying to focus on your loved ones, adding another to-do, something to to your to-do list. But it may take some effort to at least find a good palliative care team that you feel connected with. Yeah, absolutely. That th- Those are great points as well. It is really challenging. It is really difficult. I was just talking yesterday with somebody about this whole process being so exhausting mm-hmm. in and of itself. And then when you have to follow up on the follow-up that you sent from the follow-up from last week <laughs> and you're still not making these progress, there is a lot at play. And I'm I'm hopeful that the flip side of this, you know, the return on the investment of looking into this might be worth it in the end. And hopefully with the work that everybody's doing around palliative care in general, we can get to that point where it's just part of the process, right? Like, oh, you've got this rare disease diagnosis. Here's your mental health care specialist. Here's your support group resource. Here's your information for palliative care team that can really help you. Like, wouldn't that be great to have it all wrapped up in a nice little bow instead of, boy, you've got this condition. Good luck with all that. Right. I mean, not <laughs> not that it's like, but sometimes it can be like that. Right. Like, hey, you've got this condition. Figure out how to manage it. This is progressive. Good luck with all that. Those are really challenging things. So what can we do to make this a little bit easier, a little bit better for everybody? And, you know, this is just another step in, in the road in the in the process here. I, I'm curious if we go back to, you know, some of the some of the other folks in the in the rare disease community at large here, right? There's folks like me who are a patient navigating these waters. There's others who are caregivers for adults, or many of my friends are caregivers for children who have a rare disease or a chronic illness condition. When we're kind of going through that process and we're looking and we're even maybe even coming in to to see you for that first appointment, what questions might you think of that could be helpful for the patient, the caregiver? that side coming in to meet with you for that first time. Cause you know, my wife and I are driving to the appointment. We're like, I don't, I don't know what to say here. I'm not really sure what to do. I don't even know what's going on. So, so the education piece that here I think might be helpful and beneficial, but 
I'm also curious from your perspective, going into that first appointment, how does somebody prepare or get ready for that? As far as the, being the patient or the caregiver or kind of both? Yeah, I guess from the patient caregiver perspective, or maybe both, right? Like how either or type situation, how, you know, what, what can we do to help that process along or to come in after we've gone through the steps of figuring out, okay, we know what palliative care is or a little bit about it. We've got this referral, we're ready to go in. We're ready to walk in and sit down for that first appointment. Then what? You know, I think what I would encourage people to do is just go in with an open mind, be open to having conversations, you know, kind of consider if possible, you know, what you would like your healthcare to look like going forward. Some people do come in with very strong you know, they've already made decisions and they just need support and getting there. And others are still like, I just don't know. And either is okay. I think it's helpful if people consider how things are going at home, what kind of resources they may need. We definitely want to support the caregivers. We want to support the patient. If their goal is to stay at home, you know, think about how can I make this work? What resources will I need to be able to continue this at home? So thinking about those things, thinking about who may help help you? You know, who do you lean into outside of the core group? Do you use your, you know, do you have a a social group that you can lean into? Are your neighbors particularly helpful? Your kids, can they help? You know, kind of identifying those resources. One thing that we like to really identify early in the process is the durable power of attorney for health care. I think that's a critical piece for us. And we will often push for at least that the first visit because things happen to people. And we want to make sure we know who would be the person who spoke for you and advocated for you if you were unable to speak for yourself. So identifying your durable power of attorney for health care. You know, if you have a living will, if you have a post, bringing those with you, if you have any documents documents that may be helpful in understanding who you are and what your hopes are, that would be really helpful to bring along to the appointment with you. It's not an expectation. Most people show up in our clinic, again, not having had these conversations before, and that's okay. We will work with you. But if you have, we don't need to keep rehashing that and can maybe get to something different that's more bothersome or more pertinent to you. So having those available can be really helpful too. Yeah, no, I was just thinking like, I think most of our patients come in and I, you, it's so common that we hear like, I don't even know what this is for, but my doctor said I should come. And we're always like, wow, you really trust your doctor <laughs> to just go to an appointment. So that's <laughs> awesome. That's actually very common, our starting point. And that's completely okay. I think just coming in, being available, being willing to share yourself and being willing to let us know what your needs or your worries are. That's, that's kind of our guideposts at the beginning for sure. Yeah. It's totally reasonable to come in and just say, I don't know why I'm here and I'm terrified and that's okay. And then we can kind of take it from there and explain our role and get to know you. And that may be what we accomplish in that visit. And, and it is really actually so valuable just that little, nugget to build on because we anticipate these will be longer relationships. We really try to recognize you're a person, you're not a condition. But when people access medical appointment after medical appointment and lab draw and, you know, lung test and all of these things, they start to not feel like a person. They feel like an object or a disease. We're working to try to um, reframe that. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to try to reframe that and to to do that because the 
I don't know that there's a audio component to this, right? That's going to be broadcast for the podcast. If there was a video component, people would see me just nodding my head <laughs> continually as you're both talking right? like a broken bobblehead or something. So the things that you're both mentioning are things that I experienced as well as we're going through that process. And part of it might be, you know, when you're going into, you know, a, a, a different doctor's point, like your PCP or your cardiologist or your pulmonologist or, you know, any of these specialty areas, you know, it might be, hey, you've got this 15 minute window that you're getting in. What's the problem? We're getting out like type of a deal. And there's not, maybe not that time built in. It might just be the approach of the individual or the approach of the practice or those types of things. But when you're talking about diving into some of those feelings that you're experiencing, the condition that you're having, what's going on as you process all of this, that was some of the first times that I've experienced that as well especially on like the, a deeper level. And it was something that I also really appreciated about the process that was very helpful for me. So, you know, on behalf of, of myself and others that have benefited from that, you know, I want to thank you and thank others that are in the palliative care systems uh, for being that and for providing that because it makes such a huge difference overall. It really does. It's very helpful. Well, thanks, Adam. It's I, you know, I see it as just such a great privilege for me as a provider to be welcomed into that space when people are most vulnerable. So it's just really a beautiful thing and a privilege for us to be there. Well, one thing that I wanted to to highlight before we start to wrap up, and I do want to, you know, wonder if there's anything else that we haven't hit on yet that you both think uh, might be important to get out there, but. I wanted to loop back around to that, you know, kind of those questions to ask for people coming into their first appointment. I also, uh, you know, thank you for bringing up the fact that some people just do show up and they're like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what's going on. What do I do? I was kind of one of those people. I had a general idea. I knew why I had the specific one referral, but in terms of what to really expect, I had no clue. So if, you know, if there's people out there that are like that, you're not alone. That happens a lot. I want to make sure to highlight that. I asked the question because I know there's some folks that really want to take that control and have a plan and be prepared and write things out. So both, you know, both perspectives that you both provided there are really helpful. And no matter which boat people happen to fall into, it's okay. The, the you know, one of my big takeaways is your work and palliative is to kind of figure out where I am or where I, you know, the patient is where the caregiver and then move from there and um, wherever you are, that's okay. That's a great place to be. So wanted to loop back around on that. Yeah, absolutely. Any last thoughts or, or little tidbits information that you want to get out there that I might not have, have uh, brought up or anything that you thought of as we're continuing through the conversation that you want to leave folks with before we wrap up here? I mean, I think the only thing I'd say that we kind of touched on some, but you know, the, the vision of us as our service and how Michelle and I work with people is this really should be like a living relationship, like people's goals and values and risks benefit assessment early in their condition, as opposed to later may change a lot. And that's totally okay. And it makes a lot of sense many times. And so it's not like, you know, unfortunately, some of these things um, seem really firm, like um, a living will or a, a, a code decision or things like that. But those should be revisited all the time as things change and evolve. And that's kind of the awesome experience we have outpatient because we do have a long relationship with patients is to help them reassess those as time goes on and see how things need to adjust and change. So I think that's the only other thing I'd say, as Michelle said, it's like on a, it's just like um, a really 
privileged position to share this tender, difficult space with people. And it's, it's, it's just a total honor for me. And I'm thrilled about what I do and that people, you know, trust us to enter that scary space and help talk about scary things. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great, Kim. Yeah. I think that's just beautiful. I agree. I feel, you know, after being a PA in the community for 30 years, I feel this is just like a culmination and kind of, you know, I'm following my own journey. And I feel like as I get to my, the end of my career journey, this is just a really privileged place to be where I really hope that I can get that I hope to give back to people. So it's a privilege and an honor to work with um, people on this point in their lives. Yeah. Well, thank you both. It, it's been you know, a privilege for me to be able to not only work with you as a, as a patient and have you supporting and being a member of my care team now. And it's also been a privilege to be able to chat with you in this setting like this. I'm hopeful that it's really beneficial for others who are considering, you know, exploring palliative care as we kind of navigate this process. What is it? How do we go about it? What What are the ins and outs a little bit? And it at least gets the conversation moving along, started in some cases, continuing in others. And thank you both for the work that you're doing for, you know, not only patients like myself and, and the families, also for the education aspect. And that education side is incredibly important. You're both doing amazing work and I can't thank you enough. Thanks again for taking the time for me today. I know you've got really busy schedules and it's been, it's been a joy to chat with you. Thank you, Adam. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, we're so glad you invited us. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.